Britain's High Court rules on puberty blockers for trans kids. Dutch government to pay compensation for the forced sterilisation of trans people. And the life stories behind World AIDS Day. Hello and welcome to the podcast from Openly, the LGBT plus news website from the Thomson Reuters Foundation. I'm Hugo Greenhouse, LGBT plus editor of the foundation and overall editor of Openly, which you can find at openlynews.com. This week, Britain's High Court ruled on a long-running battle between a former patient and the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust, and it's not good news for trans children. The Dutch government is set to follow in the footsteps of Sweden and pay compensation to trans people who were forced to undergo sterilisation as part of their process of changing gender. And why it is important to hear the stories of those affected by the AIDS pandemic as we mark World AIDS Day this week. Stay with us for the top LGBT plus news now. This week saw the culmination of a landmark trial that would determine whether children under 16 questioning their gender will have access to puberty-blocking drugs. On Tuesday, the High Court ruled it was highly unlikely that a child of 13 or under was competent to give consent to puberty blockers, and it was doubtful that 14- and 15-year-olds could weigh the long-term risks and consequences. Following the ruling, the National Health Service England updated its guidelines to state that a court order must be sought for any new referral for such medication. But the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust, which runs England's only youth gender identity clinic, vowed to appeal, setting the stage for a Supreme Court showdown. Rachel Savage was at the court on Tuesday and she joins me on the phone now. So Rachel, thanks for joining us and thanks for going down to the court. So what was the trial all about? So the trial was about whether children under the age of 18 can consent to puberty blocking drugs. So the law in England states that children under the age of 16 must be able to understand the full implications of taking any medical treatment. So they must be able to understand and fully appreciate what the outcomes of this treatment might be. So the claimants in this case were originally Susan Evans, um, a psychiatric nurse who formerly worked at the Tavistock and Portman's Gender Identity Clinic in the mid-2000s for a few years. Um, Later, a couple of years ago, she said she developed concerns that children were being put too quickly onto drugs such as puberty blocking drugs and then to cross-sex hormones. Um, She came off the case earlier this year to be replaced by Kira Bell. Now, Kira Bell had puberty blocking drugs for a year at the age of 16. Then she went on to cross sex hormones at 17 and then had a double mastectomy at 20. However, she later detransitioned. She's now 23. So she regretted the treatments she's had. She's gone back to living as a woman. And basically she said that she didn't want any other children to go through what she went through. She regrets taking the puberty blocking drugs she thinks they may have impacted her fertility now mainstream medical opinion in terms of the doctors around the world who treat transgender children or who treat children questioning their identity say that puberty blockers are reversible so if you stop puberty blockers you will start puberty again but puberty blockers give children 
the chance to have a think about their gender identity and to decide whether they might later, when laws allow, go on to cross-sex hormones, which have partially irreversible effects. Now, you can't take these hormones until you're 16 in the UK. Okay, so quite a lot of moving parts there, but just to kind of show the other side as well, uh, the not doubts or concerns about puberty blockers, but some people have said that they might impact bo uh, bone density, uh, the questions about uh, height as well, and perhaps fertility as well. So what are the other people saying that, uh, what are their concerns about puberty blockers? Yes, so to go on to the concerns, um, there isn't good long-term evidence on the long-term impacts of puberty blockers, but basically by putting a pause on puberty, there are concerns that bones might not develop fully, so bones might be less dense, you could sort of be more likely to break your bones when you're older, and perhaps you might not grow as tall as you would have done had you not taken puberty blockers. But in the case, the lawyers for Kira Bell also argued that it could impact fertility and sexual function. The other arguments that the lawyers made, and this was something that the judges agreed with in their ruling, was that, cross, was that puberty blockers are essentially a pathway, and pathway was a word that the judges used in their judgment several times, a pathway onto cross-sex hormones and then surgery. They said that the majority, because the majority of minors who take puberty blockers go on to this later treatment. Actually, children need to be able to understand the implications of the other treatment before they start taking puberty blockers. Now, many people disagreed with this. Okay, so quite a few moving parts again there, but also it's quite complicated, but also quite an emotive case, because we are talking about children here. So first of all, let's look, what was the outcome and what's the reaction been? So the outcome, as you summarised in your introduction, is that at the moment, children under the age of 16 can't be prescribed puberty blockers. So the Tavistock and Portman NHS Trust has stopped any new referrals from its gender identity clinic onto doctors who are endocrinologists. So they don't prescribe hormones and puberty blockers themselves. Um, they refer on to other doctors, but they have stopped referrals. So no new puberty blocking drugs. The NHS England also said in its updated guidelines that children who are under the age of 16 who are currently on puberty blockers will need to also get a court order. Their doctors will need to get a court order to continue the treatment. Um, but the judgment is what's called stayed. So the judgment actually hasn't come into effect yet. So um, no treatment is being stopped just yet. And the Tavistock are appealing, but a lot of parents of transgender children have been taking to social media saying, you know, they're devastated, they don't know how they're going to tell their children that their treatment might be stopped or that their children were going to get treatment, you know, next week or in the next few months. And there are years long waiting lists for this treatment. So, you know, they were saying that they were absolutely devastated and that their children might, you know, develop serious mental health problems because of this. On the other hand, Kira Bell and her supporters were jubilant because they see these drugs as that these drugs should be given out very, very carefully and that introducing a court order is the right thing to do. And so they see this as a victory and they're extremely happy that, you know, people questioning their gender may not come to regret it, come to regret irreversible treatment like Kira did. So let's take the story forward. Uh, I mentioned it's very tabloid language, so forgive me, but the Supreme Court showdown, what happens next? So yes, the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust, they are appealing the judgment. So I spoke to them on Tuesday night 
and they said that they were talking to their lawyers. Um, so they've asked permission to appeal. So that permission to appeal has to be granted. We don't know yet whether that has been granted, but it seems everyone is seems to be expecting that it will go to another court, to probably to the Court of Appeal and then on to the Supreme Court if the Court of Appeal finds with Kirabel. So the fight goes on and on, and we will be watching that very carefully. But Rachel, in the meantime, thank you very much for joining us. And you can read more of our coverage now on Openly at openlynews.com. The Dutch government is set to pay about 2,000 trans people who were forced to undergo sterilisation to legally change their gender €5,000 each in compensation. The compensation stems from a Dutch law that up until 2014 required anyone who wanted to change the gender on their birth certificate to first be sterilised and to alter their bodies through hormones and surgery to match their new gender. Sweden was the first to offer compensation. In 2018, it became the first country in the world to compensate the victims, offering almost €22,000, much higher than the Dutch government. So what is this all about and where did these laws come from? To discuss this, I'm joined now by Carolyn Schaps in Amsterdam, who reported on the issue for opening this week. So Carolyn, thanks as ever for joining us. First, this story itself is good news, but based on quite a shocking story. So can you tell us a bit about when it happened to start off with? Yeah, hi Hugo, thanks for having me again. Um, Of course, uh, so this is a law that stems from um, 1985, so it was in place for a good few years. And actually, at the time, it was uh, seen as quite progressive. And in fact, the Netherlands was back then one of the first European countries to allow transgender people to to change their gender on their birth certificate. But of course, um, you know, with quite onerous um, conditions and... um, one of them was to um alter their their bodies through surgery and hormonal treatments and um the other one which is quite striking of course the sterilization condition um and in fact this also led to the fact that a lot of people um you know who wished to change their gender didn't do it because they simply didn't want to go ahead with sterilization um and um this irreversible treatment of course had had huge impact on on on, on people who you know, had to make that choice, and and especially the people who did go um, ahead with this. And um, one of the one of the campaigners here in the Netherlands um, is a transgender woman called uh, Willemijn van Kemper, and she was uh, talking on the Dutch radio and just explaining a bit about how she experienced the whole thing. And uh, you know, she said um, it took her about eight years to 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 consider whether she wanted to go ahead with the treatment, just because it was so you know, it had such severe consequences for her life. And she says that now um, and later in life when, you know, she had a, a steady relationship and had built a nice uh, house and uh, um, had a nice home. And she said, you know, she basically had her nest ready but wasn't able to to fill it with her own children because she had to go through the sterilization process. So so this was, of course, um, you know, a, a law that um, really caused a lot of pain for a lot of people. Um, so therefore, um, yeah, uh, the, the news this week um, of the apology and the compensation, albeit it being very small, um, you know, was, was, was good news for the transgender community here in the Netherlands. Yes, I think the key phrase there, a lot of pain for a lot of people. You're probably right here. But uh, so why is the government move now to compensate people? What was there a campaign behind this? Yes, there uh, was a campaign really since, uh, you know, the beginning when the in 2014, when the law was changed, because the transgender community said, oh, 
fabulous that this law has changed but really nobody really understands in this in the Netherlands how much pain this had caused us and and what on what we went through so we want the government to come forward and apologize and to you know also in a way show the country what's what 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 it inflicted on us all these years um and so um also the fact what you mentioned earlier that the that Sweden had come forward with a compensation decision um a couple of years ago definitely also put a bit of pressure on the Netherlands to 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 follow suit and um uh so at the end of last year the the campaign um from the transgender community really um took shape and they officially you know wished to uh hold the government accountable for 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 this law and um uh since then the government had been in touch with the community and asked what they could do to make amends because they realized that um obviously this 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 had caused a lot of pain um and so ultimately ultimately now the government came out uh, with this um decision um and uh, yeah we'll be compensating uh, the people um affected I think a lot of people myself included will be shocked to find this this was still going on up until 2014. So what's the public reaction been to this in terms of the compensation plans and and more generally I guess looking sort of more broadly how are trans people treated or considered in Holland? Yes, that's a good question. Um because the Netherlands is always seen as quite a um quite an open country, uh, quite an accepting um society and 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 also the fact that in 1985 it had already passed this law to allow the transgender um people to change gender shows that, you know, it it was sort of always trying to be a bit progressive here. But in fact, um you know the transgender network netherlands uh, is is one of the the big uh, campaign groups um behind behind the community said um that they had done a survey just to check <laughs> how things are really with with people people who are transgender in the netherlands and they found some um really quite astounding um uh, results for example that about 40% of people um who responded to their survey said they had experienced um um uh they had experienced domestic abuse um so that's not just out outdoors on the street or you know in their workplace this is really people who they live with their families or friends or uh, housemates people you know who had in some shape or form um mistreated them at home um and in fact um the survey also showed that transgender people in the Netherlands are seven times more likely to be victims um of uh of of assaults or threats um made out in public so so really um things are still you know quite um quite difficult in a way for some transgender people who are still still facing lots of discrimination just out on the street but um uh you know there's also progress being made so uh so uh, hopefully going forward um things will improve progress indeed and we'll be watching things very carefully but in the meantime Caroline thanks as ever for joining us from Amsterdam and you can read more on the issue on openly at openlynews.com now This week we marked World AIDS Day on December the 1st. Normally here in the UK we would have had various remembrance celebrations, but this year coronavirus lockdowns have forced those online. But as Paul Common of the National HIV Story Trust wrote for us this week, it is important to remember those lost and also those stories of those people as well. So Paul joins us now. So Paul, why is it important to record people's personal stories of living with HIV? Um, well, I think at the heart of it, and in fact at the heart of the uh, National HIV Story Trust, um, 
is uh, education, basically, in, in all its various manifestations. Um, you know, w without recording them, uh, people are already forgetting, and we will forget if we haven't recorded them somewhere. Um, and, you know, to forget our history is really t a tragedy heaped on the tragedy of, of AIDS itself. So uh, we believe that recording them, um, we then preserve them for future generations um, so that they can, you know, as, as people who are HIV positive, say for 30 or 40 years today, they're, they're getting older and they're, they're going to die and with them their stories will die. So it's actually quite urgent that we, uh, we record them now. No, absolutely. And well, we'll come on to the kind of the, the contents in a second. But, but a few more kind of practical questions. I mean, how many stories do you have so far and how do you go about getting them? Uh, we have uh, actually 103 stories. We set out to do 100. Um, and very, when we started this, it was to be a film, actually. It wasn't, wasn't, we hadn't decided to, to form a charity. So we just wanted to make a film. At that time, there was very little. Uh, actually done on film or indeed doc in any documentary form uh, in the UK. You know, they're very good in the States at doing this sort of thing. But in the UK we haven't been very good. There has been one film um, by an independent group uh, done of, of the whole era since we've been compiling these uh, interviews over the uh, last five years or so. Um, and what we didn't want to do at that time and didn't particularly want to do now was actually to target people. We thought if we started to uh, edit, if you like, that history, that we could come undone. You know, if we were going to go in with an agenda, that wasn't going to be a really, a really good um, uh, platform. Um, so we relied uh, on the community at first, um, you know, word of mouth. We'd interview somebody and somebody would say, oh, you need to speak to so-and-so. And it sort of went like that. And then word got around, people started to approach us. Um, we did advertise and say if anybody wants to tell their story, but we didn't say who they should be. You know, it wasn't that they had to be HIV positive or anything like that. We just wanted, we were interested really to see who wanted to come forward. Now that's interesting as well, just to stress that you're right to say that it's not just those who are positive themselves, but also it's those who've been affected by HIV, isn't it basically? So the wider community. Yes, I mean, I think I think a lot of people, when they, if they have any sort of bare knowledge of, of the history of HIV and AIDS, they tend to think of really uh, gay, middle-aged white men um, and think that that was the end of the story, as it were. But of course, you know, so many different people were involved, you know, families, friends, clinicians, politicians, you know, just everyone, you know, you can't... A virus isn't isn't sort of kept in a box, as it were, um, and and anybody could be infected. Um, you know, it wasn't just uh, as in the early days where it was targeted at gay men and drug users. I believe was was uh, the other group that was highlighted, uh, and then a little bit later on, uh, tainted blood. Well, let's turn to the to the content of the stories, to the stories themselves. I mean, are there any common themes, or or, or do they differ widely? I mean, what, what sort of things do people say basically? Gosh, well, interestingly from your other question about, you know, how we found people or what, how do we go about it, what we, sorry, what actually transpired was a very diverse group of people who came forward. <coughs> Excuse me. So, um, 
you know, we had all different races, we had all different ages, um, all different sexualities, um, and some of these stories that we were told may have begun, for, exa- for example, way back when in Uganda, that was where they got their infection, and then they came to the UK, and their story changed once they were in the UK, and, and so forth. So there's a huge diversity of experience uh, from people. Um, and, and I do mean huge. I mean, it goes anywhere from witchcraft to uh, to exorcism to um, tragedy on a grand scale uh, uh, all the way through to love and compassion and, and all of those sorts of things. I mean, I guess there's an awful lot of death in those stories. Um, that's for sure. Um, certainly in the, the people who are talking going back to the 80s, you know, gay men uh, at that time a lot of gay men were losing their lives uh, and if not their lives they were losing their lovers or friends so there's many many stories of loss of course Um, there is surprisingly uh, only a small number of people who would talk of um, negativity towards them Um, after the you know within a very few years actually of the AIDS story breaking there were a lot of support groups set up, a lot of drop-in centres set up and, and uh, eventually the hospices so um, there, was, there was a lot of support for people, a lot of love for people um, and I think the stories divide equally between the horrors of death and the hope of life well, let's again kind of follow up on that in terms of looking at those stories of loss. We're experiencing a similar, uh, well, I guess, type of, of pandemic at the moment in terms of what's happening with coronavirus. So, I mean, are there any lessons that we can learn in terms of dealing with the current coronavirus epidemic? It's all very contentious, I think, drawing parallels between this, this one and uh, this, uh, the COVID pandemic and the AIDS pandemic. But... Um, what strikes me very much is that it's a shame that we didn't apply the lessons we already knew from HIV when this started, when COVID, you know, broke, broke uh, across the world. Um, you know, we we reverted to exactly what happened when when AIDS came along. It was a case of, oh, it's not us, it's them. You know, back in the day, it was it's something happening in in America. You know, AIDS is in America. It's amongst gay men in bathhouses. That's how how small we saw the problem and in the same way you know in in the 21st century here here we were saying oh it's happened in a a wet market in China as if a virus acts like that you know if there is a virus out there and it's a deadly virus you're not going to contain it very easily at all and it's going to spread and spread fast Um, so that type of approach wasn't helpful and shouldn't be in the future there is little point in us using all of our efforts towards stigmatising some place or some person. Uh, Again, those parallels, um, the way in which people began to talk about it as a China virus, and then the attacks, the racial attacks on Chinese people in this country and other countries across the world, completely unnecessary and unforgivable. Um, But it it was something that happened first time round. You know, after after we decided that it was Americans and it was uh, AIDS was coming to the UK, we then started to stigmatise uh, in the 80s um, gay men who, who enjoyed wearing leather. 
it was their sexual practices they were the ones that got it um, and we can't make those distinctions you know we mustn't in the future uh, do that it's, it's completely unhelpful just a final very quickly please uh, in terms of if i want to go and read or hear these stories where should i go and look at the moment the stories are being uh, transcribed and they are being fully catalogued by the London Metropolitan Archives and we'll be uh, letting people know when they can access those archives at the LMA um, they'll be freely publicly accessible uh, and that's going to take between 12 months and a year I'm afraid but there's an awful lot of work to do. Fantastic well Paul thank you very much for joining us and you can read Paul's article now on World AIDS Day on openly at openlynews.com <laughs> You're listening to the podcast from Openly, the LGBT plus news site from the Thomson Reuters Foundation. That's all for this week, but do catch up with all this week's stories and more at openlynews.com. And do join me, Hugo Greenhouch, for another look at the week's LGBT plus stories at the same time next week. In the meantime, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Openly and be sure to like our Facebook page too. This episode was produced and edited by Christopher Johnson. And from all of us here at Openly and the Thompson Reuters Foundation, do stay safe and well and thank you for joining us.